Um, I, I don't know about you, but I know it can be quite easy to fall silent. I know some of you have a hard time believing that can be true of me. When you're discussing or dialing with others and you're hearing about the, their philosophy or ideology. We, we live in a world today full of different ideologies and philosophies. In fact, I googled this week kind of like the, the top 20 philosophies of our day or ideologies that are out there. Various ideologies and philosophies that are out there that are being taught to our children. They show up in the school system. They show up in movies, these ideologies and philosophies. They show up in music. They're everywhere. Everywhere we go, the ideologies and philosophies of the world are there. Whether it's that genders don't exist, whether it's that culture shouldn't exist, whether it's philosophies or ideologies that are atheistic in nature, whether it's you name it, there's just all kinds of them. I'll get to some of them in a few minutes. And at times we feel like we just are on the defensive when we believe that God has created and then we believe that we have fallen, which has spiraled the whole world into this mess. And then we believe that Christ has come to offer redemption and that he loves and longs to redeem. And then we move from redemption and God's loving redemption to the fact that Christ can redeem because he was raised to life again. He incarnated himself, then he was raised to life again after his death and his ascension, soon to be his descent where he will return. People think we've lost our minds. They will call us anti-intellectual. They will call us bigoted. They will think that what we are teaching and espousing is now called dangerous, should be eliminated, should be silenced. In fact, recently in the pro-choice article that was in the Hamilton Spectator, that was in other papers across our nation, the author of it said that it's time we simply silenced these hate-filled, pro-choice people. It's time we just silenced them. Because no longer should we tolerate, that was the word, the language he used, their opinion at the table. That's, that's the world we live in. But sometimes we think it's just our world. Sometimes we think it's just where we are and that maybe there's no way of understanding how to engage this. But in Acts 17, this is where the Apostle Paul found himself when he went to Athens. He found himself in a place filled with multiple gods and multiple philosophies. I mean, the great philosophers of Greek are still influential today. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Their works are still sought after, though they lived 300 years before Christ lived. And people adhere to some of their philosophies. I mean, still instrumental to this day. There was never a place on earth till that time from 5 century BC until the time of Christ that was like Greece. I mean, the Greeks were so powerful that when the Persians were the world power, right? So it was the Assyrians then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greek with Alexander the Great. But before the Greeks took power, when the Persians kept pressing toward them, and at one point it said with a million in the army of Persia, a hundred thousand Greeks were able to ward them off. They were the first democratic society we know of in human history. When Rome took them over, eventually, they allowed them to continue their democracy. 
But there was nothing like the Greeks when it came to art, literature, poetry. Nothing like the Greeks when it came to philosophy. And Paul finds himself in this place in Athens. Listen to the word of the Lord, Acts 17, beginning at verse 16. But first, the ideologies and philosophies of this world cannot bring ultimate meaning or fulfillment. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's Timothy and Silas, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was so full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Greeks, the Jews, sorry, and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Let me just walk through some things here. So Paul's in Greece. The most philosophical, educated, the most artistic and literate place on the planet. That's where Paul finds himself. And as he's walking around Greece, it says he's distressed. That's the word the Bible uses. Because he sees it's full of idols. He sees all of the idolatry. But of course, Greek, right? Mythology. I mean, most of us don't know Roman mythology. We know Greek mythology. Zeus. Hermes, like we can name several of the Greek gods. Most of us can't name any of the Romans gods, though there was a huge Roman mythology as well. Why? Because it was so influential and impactful. But as Paul walks around, there would have been just innumerable statues, shrines, temples, altars. They're everywhere. I mean, we go now, if you go to Greece, I haven't been, but if you go and visit Greece, we go and see the art history that has lasted these thousands of years. But when Paul was walking around, this wasn't artistry. People were walking into the temples of Zeus, Artemis, and they were worshiping them. And Paul is distressed. He's like, oh, this is leading nowhere. These people are all condemned. When are you distressed? Are you distressed at work when someone's talking to you and they share a philosophy or ideology that you know is hollow and empty and will only lead to damnation? Are you distressed when you're with your family, a family picnic, and they're sharing things that you know are only empty and hollow and aren't the wisdom of God? Are you distressed when you're at school and you're hearing things put out there that you know are empty and hollow? Are you distressed when you're talking to your neighbors? When are you distressed when are you distressed for people? When are you so burdened for them as they're sharing what they believe and think and you realize that it's not the gospel, it's actually contrary to the gospel, that everything they're stating their life upon is a lie. Did you hear that? That everything they're stating their life upon, their whole system of belief is a lie. When are you distressed for those people around you who are living that empty, hollow place. Well, note, Paul started in the synagogue like he always did. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God, 
God-fearing Greeks note this as well as the marketplace. So though Paul started in the synagogues, he also believed that the marketplace was a place where he could share the gospel. Paul actually believed that he could engage in public discourse in public places with the gospel. Why? Because he knew it was true. Jesus had changed his life. Do you believe that? Do you believe you can engage in public discourse with the gospel at the water cooler? In Starbucks? McDonald's? At school? With your neighbors while you're cutting the grass? If the gospel is true, and it is, then we are able to have public discourse with people about the gospel. We're able to talk to people about what we believe. Now, it says that Paul reasoned with them. The idea of the term here is that he both listened, right? He walked around the, the town. He looked at the different idols. He took stuff in. So reasoning is the idea of both listening and engaging. It carries the connotation of both speaking as well as taking it in. And so Paul was postured to listen, to hear what people believed, to understand them. That's why he can quote from them. You'll see this in the passage. He actually quotes from some of the very people that they adhere to, some of the very philosophers that they are following. Paul's able to do that because while he's there in Athens, and though he was a well-educated man, likely not well-educated in terms of Greek philosophy, so while he's in town, he's reading about it. He's listening about it. He's hearing people think. He wants to hear what they say so that he can engage it. The Epicureans, one of the groups that engaged Paul, the apostle, they believed that there was nothing after death. They believed that God was remote and not near. They believed that if God or gods existed, that they were uncaring. And so they believed that the chief end of people was pleasure. That was the chief end of life. You were to engage in as much pleasure as possible. The Stoics were different. They were moralist. They believed that your whole life centered around being good. That you had to be good. Everything you did had to be good. People had to believe that you were good. And that you had to be virtuous. So that meant that you had to toughen up, that you had to endure pain, that if you were going through suffering, there was to be no complaint. If you were going through suffering, there was to be no tears. If you were going through suffering, that there was no one to turn to, that you just had to suck it up and endure it. That's what they believed. So that's Epicureans, nothing after death, pleasure is the end. And Stoics, being good is what's important and virtuous, including through suffering and pain. So they call Paul a, a babbler. Says, you're not making any sense. That's the idea of babbling. Everything you're saying, they say it's kind of like he was scattering bird seed. It was just random. They say, nothing you're saying is making sense. It's like you have no original idea. If you begin to look today at the philosophies of our day, what do you find? People will suggest that it's gender, religion, and race are all social constructs. That's what they'll say. Huge philosophies on there are that day, multiple philosophies. Gender is a social construct, race is a social construct, religion is a social construct. So we just made them up. We've just, we've just decided there are different culture groups and we've just created them. We've decided there are different religions, we've created them. We've decided there are different genders, we've created them. And, and people will say in these views of philosophy that none of these things exist, that they are things that we have created, social constructs that we've made. Right? What's the big one? Almost every week now you can see an article on this. 
polyamory relationships. They don't want to call it polygamous because polygamous typically meant, traditionally, a man with two women or more than that, multiple women, and that man was with multiple women at different times, right, in terms of, in terms of that relationship. So multiple women as part of his family, but with them one at a time. Polyamorous is any one person with being a number of other people, right? And the article this week, I think it was in, in, in the Financial Post, it was crazy, Financial Post. Is, is this the end of monogamy, right? These are the articles that are being published all the time that's coming out there, but it's one of the philosophies of the world, atheism. Atheism, that the world can self-create, that the world is able to self-exist. It's another one of the world's philosophies that's out there that's being pushed on us continually. Morality, you know, whether it's about, about stealing or about justice, whatever it is, right? That it, again, people would say it's a social construct. There's part of the evolutionary chain that to get from one level of evolution to the next evolution, we had to create different social constructs in order to exist. And these are philosophies that you find all over today. And did you hear verse 21? All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does that not sound like our day? Is that not our day? That's all we do. We just talk about these different ideas. Let me say this. The gospel can engage any intellectual idea, philosophy, or ideology, and we need to bring the gospel into public discourse again. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel can engage any intellectual idea, philosophy, or ideology? It's the truth. Now, it's hard to believe. Or maybe it's easy to believe, but hard to live out. Because you end up in a conversation with someone and you're just stuck. You're like, I'm on the defense. You're like, how can you believe that? That's what they say to us, right? How can you think that? You read words about how dangerous we are. How some groups are advocating strongly, right? That Christians not be allowed to adopt. That Christians not be allowed to foster. Because of what we bring to these children. The damage, quote unquote, we do. You read all articles on this that we do to them today. And we kind of just cower as if we have nothing to offer in return. We have the truth of the living God to offer in return. And God's gospel is able to hold its own. God's gospel is able to hold its own against any ideology, philosophy, or idea the world has ever thrown at it. Do you believe that? It is the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God. And it's to be in public discourse. So Paul stood up in the meeting at the, of the Areopagus where people stood to present ideas. And he said, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious. For I walked around and carefully looked at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Paul's done his homework. He's done his research. He's walked around. He's looked to see what Athens is like, who they're worshiping, what they're believing in. He's done some study while he's here. He's going to quote from two of their philosophers. And he says, I even found an altar that's here with an inscription to an unknown God. Why would the Athenians have that there? They had it there because they feared that they might miss a God. 
And if they might miss a God, they might make that God angry. And they didn't want to make any God angry because if they made that God angry, who knows what could happen? So they wanted to make sure they didn't miss any God. Let's have all of the gods able to be uh, worshipped here in Athens. And so we'll make sure that each of them, Aphrodite, Apollos, Zeus, right? You name them. Have their own altars and statues and temples for some of them. So that you can gather and do that. And then there's one that's there to the unknown God, just in case we missed someone. Just in case somehow haphazardly there was someone that we missed. And Paul says, I want you to know that what you believe in ignorance, I'm going to share with you in truth. I'm going to share with you in truth. Is that arrogant? It's not. It's not. We can be arrogant in the way we present things. We have to be so careful. Because we need to be postured in a place of listening. But we do not need to apologize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In no way do we need to apologize for that. We don't need to apologize that God has saved us. It is the good news. We don't need to apologize that we believe that the way of God is the way of life. So who can do this? I mean, Paul stands up in the middle of the town, or at least in the portion of town where everybody gathers to hear the new philosophy or ideology, and he begins in this reasoning. He was in the marketplace, and he was in the Jewish synagogue, and now he's at the Areopagus. Who can do this? Who can engage like this? Listen, this is so important. If you're a Christian today, here is the answer. Aiden, how old are you? 12. In the video, you talked about being baptized, right? Because God has saved you. I know that. We've had that conversation. Aiden's 12. Aiden, you can do this. All right? So who can do this? Anyone who's a child of God. We need to be postured in learning and listening. We need to hear what other people are thinking. But I don't need to become an expert in everyone's religion. I need to have some understanding of of their ideology, of their philosophy, sure. I want to hear, draw out from them what they're thinking. But then what do I need to be an expert in? Just one thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to be an expert in who God is and what he's done. That's it. I need to be able to present to them as I'm thinking about what they're saying and believing how the gospel is the answer to the very things they're struggling with, how the gospel is able in any level of intellect, in any level of philosophy, to engage with them. I mean, we shrink back as if this isn't possible, but it is. When I was going through the list of of the greatest philosophers of our day, it was encouraging for me as it was ranked by a number of non-Christians that people like William Lane Craig were on the list. Christian, godly man, loved Jesus deeply. One of the, one of the best, uh, uh, I, I would say, we use the term apologist in terms of defense of the gospel. I never liked the term because it sounds like you're apologizing for what you believe in. But one of the greatest men who can explain the gospel of our day, brilliant in it. And he's on the list of the great philosophers of our day from around the world. I was thankful that they had men like him on there and women like him on there. But we need to know two things. That's it. Who God is and what he's done. 
We just need to know the gospel. And in knowing the gospel, as we begin to listen to people, as we try to extract them, well, tell me what you believe. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you're counting your life on. Like, what is your life built around? And as they explain that to you, you get to share them what you've built your life around. What God has done for you in Christ. Listen to what Paul does. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did so so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far off from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul says, you want to know, you want to know who this God is? One, he's not someone we created. We didn't make our God up like you did. You have created your gods. You've made statues and idols. That's not our God. He's the God who made everything. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. In fact, he doesn't need to be served. He needs nothing. And then he explains who he is. One, he's the creator. He gives everyone life. Two, he's the sustainer. He gives everyone breath. Three, he's sovereign. He marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He decided when every person would live. I mean, the most important things about you, you never decided, right? You know that's true. What family you'd be born into. You have any decision on that? None. None. What hair color you'd have. I, I got nothing on that. I didn't get to decide that. Amy tried to dye my hair when we were uh, newlyweds. She begged, begged is too strong a word. She asked, sorry, I'm gonna, oh boy. <laughs> I saw the look. And, and we dyed my hair and my goatee then. And we realized red doesn't dye that well and it was awful. It was just, it was terrible. And I climbed into bed on our honeymoon and she said, no, no, you don't look like you. You can't stay in the, I'm like, what? I can't remember. Did we shave my head off? Did we, we shaved it all off. I can't remember now. I, woo, it was just gone because she's like, we'll have to start over. Um, it was terrible, right? But the most important things about you, I'm not mechanical. My dad and brother are so incredibly mechanical, right? My dad came by Friday to drop my niece off, my dad and mom, and Amy bought a new light fixture for our dining room. And I'm like, hey, dad, I can do this and burn the house down or... Well, I'm away tomorrow um, at the elders' retreat. That was yesterday. Um, you could do it if you don't mind. Dad's like, let me see. He's retired, right? I'm so busy. He said, no, I got nothing on. And uh, my mom's like, what? Because she always has stuff for my dad to do. He's like, no, nothing on. And uh, he's like, I'll come down tomorrow and put it on. When I came home yesterday, the light's up. The house didn't burn down. It's all good. My dad and brother are so incredible. And Ethan helped my dad. Ethan came down. My dad was so excited. He's like, there's hope in your family, you know? No, my dad loves me. He's just, right? But he, he talked to me on the phone when I was driving. And he's like, man, he did such a great job. He's so mechanical. It's so good to talk shop with him. Um, I, I got none of that. I got no musical talent or ability, like zero. I, I, I like to sing, but I can't, right? But I'm thankful the Lord hears it as a joyful noise. I'd like to play, but I can't, right? When, 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 
when uh, Jesse's here and he's like, oh, I need to learn a new instrument. All of a sudden, you know, he picks up the drums and just starts to play them. And then, and then you're like so good at it. And I, I could never do that. Like I, I can go in that booth for the last song and Amos would be like, no, no. Right? God determined all of this. I'm not saying you can't grow in some things, that I can't learn some mechanical things, but I have no desire to work in a shop. And praise God that my son does. Because we need people like that. I, I, have, I have no desire to lead like Jesse does, and you shouldn't either have any desire for me to do that. Like if, if when Derek called in sick and said, I need you to host a service, I'll make sure. If Jesse called in sick, I'd be like, Angelie, you got this? Right? It was not going to be me, right? Because all of you would then suffer. And that's not right. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's sovereign. And, and did you note this? God did this. He decided when you would be born so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. He's not far from any of you because he's relational. He's not distant. He loves to have relationship with his creatures. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, for he set a day when, uh, for he has set a day when he will judge the world. Uh, sorry, uh, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So here were God's offspring. He says, God's the father. He's not only the creator, he's the father. We're all his offspring. He's the judge. That's why we repent to him. And his son is alive. He alone is worthy of worship. And so here in Paul's argumentation, he begins to touch on repentance and resurrection. Some people would say this is his complete speech. I don't know if it is or isn't. I do know if it isn't his complete speech, that he'd already been in the synagogue and in the marketplace declaring the gospel, it says, and teaching about Jesus, so they'd been hearing it. But there's no quote from the Old Testament. There's no messianic promises. You see, what he begins to touch on, he knows that the Stoics want to endure pain to be good and virtuous. You're just going to plow through it, and you're going to smile and not cry. You're not going to offer empathy to anyone, but that's just cold and heartless. He knows that Epicureans believe there's nothing after death, and so live for pleasure all that you can, but he knows that that is empty and without hope. You see, the resurrection declares that there is hope. Is that not good news? God's gospel is warm. God's gospel is relational. God's gospel is hope. God's gospel is not empty. It is full and it is what every human being desperately needs. It is such good news. But I'll admit, when I'm talking now to the kids in their 20s, and, and they have all this ideology and philosophy and thought, and they, they think they can create themselves, and, and, and they think that they can cancel you out if they don't like what you're saying, that it's hard to even figure out how to engage, isn't it? I mean, I have a hard time even trying to understand what to do in those moments. What do I say? I mean, I had a hard enough time trying to figure out what to say to people when they thought that they were to be true to themselves, right? And now that whole philosophy is almost dead unless you're 40 and up, and there's a whole new philosophy for people under 40. I mean, I was just working on one, and now there's a whole nother to work on. 
And if you go to my parents' generation, they have a whole different philosophy because my parents' generation is still the philosophy that you need to be good. But the, the, the problem is we figured that one out, right? Late, but we figured it out. If, if the problem is you need to be good and you can't be good, the answer is Jesus who is good on your behalf, right? And so the answer to the guilt of you not being good is the fact that Jesus has been good for you. But then we go to the millennials, the next generation of kind of those 40 and under. And they think that the philosophy of the world is to be true to yourself. And that, that you need to kind of be true to this inner self in you that you've buried because no one believed you could do that. That no, no one believed that you could be whoever it is that you want to be, this great actor or whatever it is, right? And, and kids were told, the millennials were told, you can be whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But the problem is you can't be whoever you want and you can't do whatever you want. And sometimes you think you want to be something or do something and being true to that leads to this abysmal failure and you don't know what to do and you're guilt-ridden. And so, I mean, Tim Keller did a masterful job of this in his ministry, figuring out how to speak to people. That's what he did in New York that wanted to be true to themselves and yet found themselves failing in that. And, and now we have this young generation that's coming up in their teens and 20s, Gen Z. Who they're saying, right, in the studies are the most depressed, anxious generation recorded in all of human history. And, and they believe they can create themselves. And they believe that they can cancel everyone out. But as I said a few weeks ago, they so fear that if they've created someone, and then that someone they've created does not give them meaning or purpose, that they have this guilt because they've created the wrong someone, and they don't know what to do with that guilt. And their greatest fear... Their greatest fear in knowing that they can cancel anyone they want is being canceled themselves. That's their greatest fear. If you follow the trends of suicide among Gen Z, the trends of suicide seem to indicate that it's those that feel canceled the most that end their lives the soonest. Fewer people following them on social media, no one liking what they're posting, and they end their lives. We have a God who's full of hope. And the things that are most important to them are so important to him. I mean, I shared this a few weeks ago, right? They, they love the environment. Who created the environment? God, it's his. And he's going to create, recreate it. They love body image. They're always looking at their bodies, right? And God promises us a new resurrected body. Is that not great news? I mean, I, I played tennis this week up at pastor conference. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go Wednesday afternoon. I'm going to play tennis. Tennis, it's simple. I didn't play overly hard. I tried to be careful about it. And I have been in, I was going to go to the gym this morning. I just couldn't do it. I have been in such pain on my one side since I played tennis. It's just a sciatic. I'm running through my body. I'm like, all right, they said to lose weight. I've just decided I'm not going to eat for a week. And then last night we went to the movies and Amy bought popcorn and she, anyways, treats. And <laughs> it was bad. Right? I didn't lose any weight last night. But today, until I have a barbecue at 5 o'clock, anyway, it's all fine and cook good food. Um, but we get, we, get, we get resurrected bodies. Justice. God is always only ever against evil. He hates evil. There is no one just like him. Diversity. God is saving from every language, custom, culture, and tribe. Everything they're looking for is found in the gospel. We don't need to be afraid of it. And, and the guilt they experience when they've created something or someone that they can't live up to or that they feel they're failing in, it's forgiven in the gospel. Is that not good news? 
that could bring that guilt to him. And the fear they have of being canceled when you are adopted into the family of God, when you become a child of God, the accomplished work of Christ guarantees that you're never canceled out. It is good news. You are adopted as a son or daughter of the living God. And so we need to be thinking through how we engage. And it's terrifying. There are times when I sit around the room just scratching my head when I'm sitting with different people and I'm hearing their ideology of thoughts. I'm like, wow, how do I bring the gospel to bear on that? And sometimes you just sit silent because you don't know what to say. Or sometimes you just sit silent because you're worried you're going to say the wrong thing. But the gospel of God is always good news. It is true. It is his. It is always good. And maybe our fear is more based on the fact that we haven't learned to rely on his spirit who is in us than on whether we're extroverted or introverted or what we know about their philosophy or ideology. I said there's two things you need to know, God and the gospel. But there's someone you need to know, the Holy Spirit who's in you. I realize you need to know Jesus. I'm not saying you don't, the Father, but so often we don't understand that God's Spirit is in us and he's longing to speak through us to them. So when they heard about the resurrection, verse 32, I've got to wrap up here. From the dead, some of them sneered and others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named uh, Damaris, and a number of others. Paul speaks about the resurrection, and all controversy breaks out. What? What? Like, this is outside of the box. You believe that someone was raised to life again? That's not even possible. And all of a sudden, all controversy breaks out, and some want to hear Paul speak more on it, others want him to be silent. But here's the truth. If the re resurrection never happened, all of Christianity is undone. But if the resurrection is true, every philosophy and ideology is subject to Jesus Christ. It's all subject to him. And know what happens. Some believe. A member of the Areopagus believes. Another woman believes. It says a number of others. We need to celebrate who God is and what he's done. We need to celebrate the greatness of our God. And we can engage in conversation with people. When people believe that morals are socially constructed, right? It sounds all good in theory until something happens that they don't like. And they'll admit it. You can bring them to the point of admitting it, right? Women, famed uh, uh, Toronto um, uh, professor was talking about this, and she was explaining uh, how she believes in, in the social construct theory. So we need to respect each other's social constructs. Like she's got whole articles on this. And then the Taliban takes over Afghanistan. And she's a big woman's rights, right? And, and then she begins to speak out against the Taliban and what they're doing in Afghanistan. And somebody calls her out on it and says, what right do we, if you believe in the theory of social construct, what right do we have to impose our social construct on them? They're following their own social construct. And she said, I have the right if my social construct is the right one. What? Well, then, I mean, shh, the, the people that went after her for that, right? 
Like what makes your social concept? The same things happen today in Ukraine and Russia. But when you come at it from an angle where you realize that God has created, we're image bearers that he has uniquely made. It changes everything. When you see that he's saving from every culture, language, custom, and tribe, it should give you respect for all people in all places because he is our God. When you see that Adam was pretty stuck, right, in the garden and he needed a helper, right? Sometimes we, we reverse this. We make this sound like Eve was the weak one because she was Adam's helpmate and that term is used of God. Adam, was, Adam could not do all that God had intended him to do without Eve. Adam needed help. And in that, to understand the glory of what God has done in creation with men and women and to celebrate the genders that God has granted us and to know that in that celebration, we're celebrating that God has done something beautiful in making us men and women in his image. And all of a sudden you realize that the truth of the gospel speaks into hearts and lives because it's the truth and it's God's goodness. And so maybe we need to be thinking about, just so you guys can come up, how we discourse again. Where is your Areopagus? I don't expect that later today I'll see a YouTube video of you standing on some box somewhere speaking, though maybe one of you will do it. I don't know where the Areopagus is in Hamilton, but let me give a few suggestions. It might be Mohawk College, McMaster University. It might be in an engineer's workplace or a shop where people are going out to do some plumbing. And as people are gathering in the morning to get their plumbing supplies at the shop and they're talking about their weekend tomorrow morning, you can hear their philosophy of how they live showing up. It might be neighbors you're talking to and you can hear their philosophy of how they live showing up. I remember one year I was at a dinner. We were taking someone out and all these people made a fair bit of money. And uh, this was the awkward dinner. You ever been in a really just awkward moment, right? So we're at a nice restaurant. We're all eating. We've taken an executive director of an organization that I'm a part of out for dinner. And um, someone just starts at dinner and says, you know what? It's Christmas time. I need to cut back on what I give to my kids for Christmas. So I've decided this year we're only going to do $1,000 per child. Like, what? At that time, our budget for Christmas wasn't $1,000, let alone per child. But it, it's then a horror moment in my life, right? There's eight of us at the table. The next person says, you know, you're right. I don't know why we spend this kind of money on our kids at Christmas. I'm going to cap mine at 1000 too. I'm like, oh, here we go. And it starts to go around the table. Well, at that time, we spent $50 on each kid for Christmas, right? And then Amy was like, can I have kind of 20 bucks for each kid for a stocking? I'm like, sure. Um, right, we'll figure it out. And so we're going around the table and we get to me. I'm the last one. They're like, Dwayne, what do you do? I'm like, guys, I, I may not be in the same league uh, financially as you are. Like, like th this is a very awkward conversation, I said. And they said, oh, well, I said, oh, I'm, I'm a talker. I don't, I'm not embarrassed, but... I said, we kind of do 50 bucks per kid plus 20 bucks for stocking. And the whole table just goes quiet. And like, you know, that's okay, Dwayne. Like, everybody's like, I'm like, well, and I said, and I said, part of it's because we choose to give a portion of our money away every Christmas to help some people who have nothing through our Christmas and some other stuff. And I said, maybe, I said just at the table, maybe that's what some of you should do, right? Which is kind of 
No, I, I said it nicely. Like, I wasn't <laughs> judgmental. I was just saying, like, maybe, right? And, and, and as I'm sitting there in this, boy, that sounded bad, eh? But I didn't mean it to. It just, it's just what I said. And, and, and so then, then this is what happened in that moment. Someone said to me, why would you give more away to strangers than you would give to your own kids? And I just simply said, because that's what God has done for us. And we had a bit of a conversation about Christmas and the gospel. The gospel is the truth. Do you believe that? It can stand up in rigorous conversation with any intellectual, philosophical, or ideological thought in the entire world. And it will prove itself to be the truth because it is. And so maybe around these lunch conversations and maybe in these classrooms, maybe tomorrow as you prepare to get off to work from wherever you start from, if you're working in a shop somewhere, you need to be praying about God opening doors so that you can share the truth of the gospel with just one person who you know's ideology is going to leave them empty and hollow and lead them away from God and not to him. Will you pray with me? We're thankful for the Apostle Paul and his brilliance. And God, we're thankful for this recorded in your word for us. And we confess that as we hear the ideology and philosophy of our world changing so drastically and so quickly, and so many of them being espoused, that it's spinning our heads. And it's hard to keep up. And it's hard, God, to even know how to engage. And I confess, God, that means sometimes I cower and hide. God, would you grant us the wisdom to know you and your gospel? Spirit of God, to rely on you so that as these conversations come up, when we see open doors, we can walk through them and engage in the very gospel that you've granted us in Christ because it is the wisdom of God. May we believe that not just with our hearts and with our heads, but with our words and with our actions, God. May we be listening to the people around us and what they believe and what they think so that, God, we can share with them the hope and glory that we have in you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.